Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay, we good, Bill? I mean, Lee? (laughs) That's Bill, that's Lee. I'll find you, Bill. Good evening, everybody. My name is Mike, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. I'm glad to be here sober tonight through God's grace and you people. My sobriety date is June 3rd of 1984. I want to start tonight by telling you that Most weekdays I walk three miles, and when I walk, I pray a prayer for my religious tradition. It's sort of a meditative prayer, and I pray for the living. On Sundays, however, when I go to church, I pray for the dead. I pray for those people who meant something in my life, and I have various categories, family, friends, and one category is people who've impacted my essay sobriety. I pray for Roy Kay, our our founder, every Sunday, and I pray for his family. I pray for Jess L. every Sunday. I pray for Jim E. every Sunday. I pray for a man who was not a sexaholic, but he was a non-sexaholic trustee named Don A., who was a sober in AA, I believe, for over 50 years, who helped me immensely in my life. I pray for a member of our home group, Harry, who died of cancer with such grace and dignity that he made me think that maybe death wasn't actually the worst thing that could happen to a guy. And I pray for three other members of my home group who also died. They died of this disease. One drove a car into the lake. The other was found in an alley with booze and drugs. And um, the third guy also died in his home of, of, of this disease. So I'd like to just have a moment of silence for all of us to think of those people who we remember who impacted our essay program. Thank you. That's my next part. Thank you. Thank you, Bill S. Thank you, Tom D. Thank you, Nashville. Thank you, Kay, for all the many years. What a sweetheart. Nashville feels like a second home to me. And for a Southside Irish Catholic Democrat from Chicago, that is saying something. (laughs) 
The people of Nashville in this program have treated me like gold for years and years and years, and boy, do I appreciate it. Boy, am I thankful for it. I need it. I love it. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know if Dave H. is here tonight, but he's been a friend for over 30 years. Harvey has been a friend for over 30 years. I can't tell you the blessing that these people have been and remain in my life. It's incredible. And uh, the only downside, I guess, of Essen on having their own convention is that she won't hear it when I say it, but Nancy Asher is a wonderful human being who's been a blessing in my life and in my wife's life for over 30 years. So thank you. Okay, what it was like, no, it starts with, uh, how does it go? What it was like, help me out here. What happened and what it's like now. There we go. That's what I'm going to try to do. What was it like? Second oldest of seven kids, born on the southwest side of Chicago, into an Irish Catholic family in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. Uh, alcoholism everywhere I looked. Only one woman I knew in the world who didn't drink, and that was my father's mother. She's also the only Republican I ever met in the first 20 years of my life. <laughs> she made an exception for JFK, but that was it. I never understood it. How could there be a person who didn't drink until I found out that my grandfather, who I never met, had uh, in, dead drunk and, and grieving the loss of his son who died of polio at the age of 18, jumped off a bridge and killed himself. My grandmother hated alcohol, and, and, I, and I understood why. But anyway, the point is alcohol was everywhere. But there was another disease in my family and in my neighborhood and in my community and in my culture, and that was sexaholism. Unlike alcoholism, which you could see everywhere, though, nobody could see sexaholism. And I, when, I, when I tell you that uh, Irish Catholics, and I'll have to check in with Denise and Brendan to see if it's as, as true in Ireland as it is for Irish Americans, but we never, ever talked about sex. It just wasn't done. My father, God rest him, had the courage to try to tell me the facts of life when I was in seventh grade. And some of you have heard this story. Some of you heard it earlier today. He, when he started telling me he weighed 205, and when he was done, he weighed 190. He sweat off, he sweat off 15 pounds. He was so nervous. And, and about a year later, uh, Father George, the pastor, came in for the eighth grade talk. And uh, he didn't quite lose 15, but he lost a good seven or eight pounds in the telling as well. Those were the only two conversations I ever had with an adult about sex. It was just sex. There was no such thing as sexuality. That was invented later. Everybody would say, if I would have used that word, my parents would have looked at me and said, what the heck is that? So as a teen, I discovered pornography and masturbation. I'm not sure in what order, but one close upon the other, and I was immediately addicted. It's, it's much better now, but when I tell this part of my story, I can still start to recall images of pornographic magazines that I have not seen for over 40 years. And, and, and as I do at this time, every talk, I, I, I right now, in the moment, surrender those to you and to God. My story's boring. Mostly sex with self, one affair, bookstores, adult... Uh, 
movies, magazines. Uh, people say they couldn't stop. I stopped all the time. I was studying to be a priest for God's sake. I was in the seminary. I could stop. I was the greatest stopper of all times. There were years in which I stopped over 200 times. <laughs> I couldn't stay stopped. That was my problem. I couldn't stay stopped despite a desperate desire to stay stopped because every time I didn't stay stopped, I felt like a piece of crap. The self-loathing, self-hatred, there's all these terms for lack of self-respect, low self-esteem. I don't know what it's called, but I had it. I don't want to spend too much time on what it was like. I'll tell you one story. I was teaching religion in an all-girls Catholic high school. I got involved in what they call an affair. I never quite understand why it's called that, but uh, an, an affair with uh, one of the teachers there. She was married, obviously not to me. Um, <laughs> I would drink with her husband on Wednesday, sleep with her, and drink with her and sleep with her on Thursday and think I was mighty dangerously cool. To one of my friends told me that if that guy finds out what's going on here, he's going to blow your brains out, which just made me think I was even more dangerously cool. <laughs> that was until, of course, after the actual sex, which was the whole point, afterward I felt like a piece of crap. Um, I tried to get away from this thing. I tried to get away from this thing. And uh, the last day of school, we had the picnic, which, of course, meant I was going to be drunk and stoned out of my brains. And she offered to drive me home. I hadn't been with her for, I think, two months. But, of course, I said yes. And on the way to the forest preserve, where we were going to have a conversation, ha, 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 um, <laughs> she wanted to stop for coffee, which was rather strange. And so we stopped for coffee, and she asked me a question that was really sincere. She said, do you still love me? The answer was no. I wanted out of that school. I wasn't going back the next year. I was going back to the seminary to study to be a priest. That's where, that's where my escape, my geographical, was going to take me back to the seminary where it would be a safer place to be. And uh, I looked her in the eye and I thought, if I say no, she's driving me straight home. And if I say yes, I'm going to commit what we call in my uh, religion a mortal sin. Grave matter full knowledge of what you're doing, and full consent of the will. I had all three, and I knew it, and I didn't care. I said yes. I lied through my teeth. And then we had a great time at the Forest Preserve. We were there about 45 seconds when the Forest, police, forest Preserve police pulled up and said, Sir, would you like to go to jail with us or home with your girlfriend? Get out of my Forest Preserve now. Whatever, I, I had values. I had religious training. I believed all the stuff a good Catholic boy was supposed to believe, and I still do. But my ability to have my values match up with my behavior had gone to zero. It's called powerlessness, and I had it. And unmanageability was just looking in the mirror every morning. That may not seem like much to you, but if you've got a conscience like I do, and ask Harvey if, if, if I have a full and well-developed conscience, if you've got a conscience like I do, it's a disaster. That's what it was like. The rest of it, go listen to some old tape. Um, <laughs> what happened? My brother, my older brother, had found 
had founded SAA meetings in Chicago, had found about, about them, brought them to Chicago, was telling me about them, was telling me what he had been doing for months. And I was, being a good younger brother, patting him on the back saying, oh, sorry to hear you had that problem, glad to hear you did something about it. <laughs> and one day I couldn't take the hypocrisy of my I mean, I wasn't actively lying to him, but I was certainly withholding a little bit of pertinent information. And one day, I don't know why, I just said, me too. Two words, me too. And wept. And he said, let's go to a meeting. Now, my memory is we, we went right to a meeting that moment. For all I know, it was a week later. I can't remember anymore. But shortly thereafter, we went to a meeting. And I got involved in sexual recovery. And after about a year or two in this other S fellowship, which I have nothing but respect and gratitude for, but we decided we needed something more. And again, it was my brother who brought SA to Chicago. About a year at <laughs> about a year after that, um, the Wednesday night St. Teresa's meeting started, and. Fairly shortly after it started, I started attending there. We don't even actually go to St. Teresa's anymore. We go to Holy Innocence, but we still call it the St. Teresa's meeting, which confuses the heck out of everybody, but we don't really care. Okay. <laughs> what happened was I got sexually sober. I stopped masturbating. I stopped going to adult bookstores. I stopped going to adult movies. I stopped cheating on people. Um, you know, when I told you the other story about the teacher, I didn't mention that that whole time I was dating a young woman named Kathy, who is today my wife of 35 years. Um, she, was, she was the first person who told me that my sexual behavior, which I was, I, I had a weird definition of honesty in those days. I thought honesty was cheating on your girlfriend and telling her. And she was the first person who said, this reminds me of your drinking. I'll never forget it. We were sitting along the shores of Lake Michigan, and I put my arm around her and said, Honey, they have nothing to do with one another. <laughs> As we say in the 10th step, I was wrong. <laughs> so what happened was I, I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. Um, home group. All, it's all on all the tapes. You, you, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I did what we do if we want to stay sober for the rest of our lives. I did what we do. Uh, I changed friends. I didn't go past. There's an adult, a, a, an adult movie palace a mile and a half from my house that I have not seen, except maybe a little corner of the roof, in, in 35 years. I won't go by it. And, I, and I, some people say, after 35 years, you can't go buy it? What's wrong with you? I said, what's wrong with me is if I go buy it, I might be inside after 35 years. I'm not going buy it. I just started doing what we do. And at some point, we realized uh, that the strength of a group can contribute to somebody's recovery. And we started talking in our group about building a culture of sobriety. Lots of tapes on that. That's not tonight's talk. That's what happened. Now I'm going to go into what it's like now, because that's what I really want to talk about. I'm going to tell you some victories I've had. The point is not to brag. The point is not, I'm great, I'm okay. It's not that. I, I, why do we do this? Why do we come to this? 
I'd say there's two reasons. One is to get out of hell. And the other is to take at least a few steps toward heaven. I don't want to talk too much about the getting out of hell part because, first of all, Avia did a magnificent job. Thank you. That was awesome. You keep me sober tonight. I'm, there's no chance I'm acting out tonight. It's because of you. I want to talk about taking those steps to heaven. Happy, joyous, and free. Now, let me say something about that. For some people, happy, joyous, and free becomes a guilt trip. It doesn't mean you never feel bad. It doesn't mean you don't grieve when somebody dies. It doesn't mean you don't have a bad day, and it doesn't mean you can't get depressed. You might even get mentally ill. Things still happen. But it means that you're living a life of integrity so that no matter what happens, you find miraculously, and I mean it's literally miraculously, the wherewithal to handle it somehow. Because you've got a God in your life, and you've got other people in your life who are trying to do the same darn thing. When I came into this program, I had just finished teaching a year in that school. That was not a success. That was a failure. I was so hungover some mornings, I just gave my first two periods study halls, and then I couldn't figure out at the end of the year why they were behind my other classes. <laughs> I came into the program, I, I went into business for myself, basically, and I've had a successful career for over 35 years. It's a good thing. I, I'd all but given up playing sports. At 48 years old, which is 14 years ago, I started playing softball again for the first time since I was 24 years old. I play every Saturday, April, October, weather permitting. And I'm better now than I was at 48. I play with a bunch of old men and a few young people. And uh, of the old folks, I'm the fastest guy out there. <laughs> I can still run. Now, it takes me about a week to get back to walking in time to run again next week, but I don't care. Because I'm happy, because I've been given the gift to, at the age of 62. My father was dead at 57. I'm alive on planet Earth playing softball, the game I love. That's why it's worth staying sober. I was cheap all my life. I came by it honestly. My uncle used to pull into the gas station and get a quarter's worth of gas to just top it off. <laughs> my father, when he, when, he, when he found out my brother uh, had brought home some, some dope, and he found dope, you know, and the cops came and brought my, my brother home, and we were, we were afraid for my brother's life. And uh, we knew Mount Vesuvius was going to erupt. The question was, what would be the exact trigger? It was when he heard that it cost 30 bucks. He asked the cop, what did this cost? The cop said, probably about 30 bucks. Oh, my God. I thought Terry is dead. He's going to kill him. 30 bucks? Do you know how much a gallon of milk costs, officer? And then I'm thinking, the cops might kill my dad. He's losing it. I can tell you every free parking space in Chicago is I don't pay for parking. And those rare times I have to, 
have caused some of the biggest fights in my marriage. And I'm not kidding. But I want to tell, tell you two stories because I've started to become a very, very generous person. And, and personality-wise, I'm relatively generous, but I'm talking about money. When my daughter was a junior in high school, and some of you may have heard this, uh, she went to the same high school, same Catholic high school that my wife went to. Wonderful school. And they were having a big debate about whether that school was going to close, and we put on a big campaign and won the right for, for the school to stay open. But then unbeknownst to us, there were some underhanded things happening, and all of a sudden one day it was announced that that school was going to close. And she was going to miss out on her senior year at this place she just loved and was so good for her and those young ladies. So they called a meeting, and not the head nun who was behind the closing, but this other nun uh, came out and said, we might be able to pull off an academy just for the seniors, but we need a rather large, not like out of this world large, but a rather large sum of money to make it happen. Because a lot of these kids were poor. And uh, I had one of the, you know where they say you will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle you? She, the nun made this announcement. I turned to my wife. I looked at her. She looked at me. She nodded without my saying a word. It's okay. She nodded. It's okay. And I raised my hand and I said, I have a group of investors, which really was me. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I said, I have a group of investors. The check will be on your desk Monday morning. And a bunch of girls went to school the next year at their school. As you've probably heard, and you've probably gotten over the shock by now since it's a few years back, in 2016, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Hey. So, so, um, when they won, when, when they got into the World Series, um, I had this overwhelming desire to take my nephew, my brother Terry's son, to a World Series game. However, the scalping prices were high. They were in the thousands for one ticket. So I, I, I was actually at an SA member's family member's funeral, or wake one day, and after the wake, I ran into my brother at the wake, and I says, Terry, I'd love to take you to a World Series game, but for the amount that it is, I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to take your son. And he wept and said, you're kidding me? And I said, I'm not kidding you. And then he said, is this you? <laughs> you know, that's money we're talking about. I said, I know. What am I saving it for? You know, at that time, that was, what, four years? I'm 58 years old. This is the greatest event in the history of the city, sports-wise, for us. And then I started thinking about my other nephews. And then I started thinking about my wife's nephew. And then I, I started thinking about a lot of the people. And before I knew it, I'd bought tickets for about 10 people to go to the game. And uh, I, when, when the game was over, it was game five, and we were down three games to one. It was the last home game. So had they lost, man, this would be a different story I'd be telling you. <laughs> Bill would be wiping me up off the floor by now. But my youngest brother, Paul, said something that I'll never forget. He walked by me and he said, hey, Mike, 
That was awful sweet of you. Then he looked back at me and he said, awful sweet of you. And off he went. And uh, I thought, I'd have spent ten times as much money just to hear that from my younger brother, to know that I did something that made a bunch of people happy, to know that I got out of myself and my financial insecurity and all the baggage. You know, Harvey talks about the, the, the DNA from our families and our cultures, that, that I was able to somehow step out of my rules for living, which do not include spending lots of money on girls' high schools or World Series tickets, except for me. That's okay. Uh, I was able to do something else. And... Uh, I can't, and again, I'm not bragging. I'm te- what I'm trying to tell you is I'm grateful to you because you've made me a different person. You've made me a different person. The person that part of me wanted to be, but I didn't know how. You guys taught me how. I didn't have a lot of integrity when I got into this program. That year I was teaching... I was working for a political candidate, but I was so drunk all the time that I, I ended up being late. I did a terrible job for a guy that I really cared about. Now, I'm not trying to talk about politics. The names don't matter. The parties don't matter. Um, what matters is that something I really wanted to be invested in, I totally failed at, and they knew it, and they made no bones about it to me that you know you had volunteered to do this thing and you didn't do your job. A few years later, another candidate ran for office. I was sober by then a long time. And I said to my wife, how would you like to spend about the next five weekends going to whatever state this guy needs the most support in and working our butts off in those, in those, in those states for this guy? And she said, I would love to. I said, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll make a little date thing out of it. We'll work all day. We'll go out to dinner at night and whatever. We'll hang out and um, we'll figure out what, what, what states to go to, what neighborhoods would be the most uh, advantageous to go to, which generally meant, uh, frankly, we were mostly hanging out in the ghetto all day and having a great time doing it. And um, at the end of the thing, the state that we went, <laughs> we went to, he won. And let's just say it this way. Our guys never win that state. <laughs> Ever. And uh, it wasn't so much me as it was my wife. I was good at organizing the schedules, but the actual door-to-door talking to the voters, I'm kind of an introvert. You wouldn't know it when I'm up here, but I really am. And, um, and my wife, you know, she, she, she wouldn't let anybody say no. Then nobody was too busy to vote, according to my wife. Um, and we helped make something happen. And that only was because I was sober. Because think of all these things I'm telling you. If I wasn't sober, I might have tried. I did try a few years earlier with this other candidate. I couldn't do it. I'd have never spent a dime on anybody but myself if I wasn't sober. And I would barely do that. Even when I acted out, I was cheap. It's one of the ways I knew I was an addict. I tell myself I'm going to this porno palace, and if the cover charge is more than 10 bucks, I'm not going in, and they'd say 12 bucks, and I'd give them 12 bucks. <laughs> I never, ever violated a money promise until, I, until lust came along. <laughs> then in 
That same year, when I was drinking and lusting like crazy, my Irish history professor from college called me, and he, and he, he thought he might have an opportunity for me to get a master's degree at Trinity College in Ireland in Irish history. But it fell through, literally, believe it or not, because the British people on the board there didn't want an Irish Catholic from Chicago. <laughs> so what did I do? I got real drunk and, you know, brought up the ancient hatred toward the Brits and just had the time of my life being a miserable SOB. <laughs> Twenty years later, I called that same professor up and said, I don't know why, because I got a job and I don't need a job. I want to get a doctorate in Irish history. And he said, I know just the man to send you to. And he sent me over the guy, this guy at the University of Chicago. And it took me about 10 years, part-time. I got a doctorate in Irish history just because it felt like it. And um, <laughs> ended up writing, teaching, the whole thing part-time. Um, never would have happened, except that I was sexually sober. When I was drunk, I liked to complain. I was very active in my church. I liked to complain about what was wrong with my church. I was very active in politics. I liked to complain about what was wrong with politics. Um, I didn't like to really do a lot about any of it. I loved to talk about it. About five years ago, uh, well, more than that now, about probably eight years ago, a real good friend of ours who was a priest died. And my wife said to me one day, you know that generation of priests that raised us, and they really did. I was raised by wonderful, wonderful priests in the Archdiocese of Chicago, literally raised by them. And, uh, my, wife, and my wife, in a different way, was also by priests and nuns, and... Uh, she said, you know, that generation's dying out. Wouldn't it be great if somebody wrote a book about them? Three days later, I went to see a friend of mine, and I said, I want to write a book about your class. And uh, what do you think? Because he's kind of a spiritual director of mine. And I was going on and on and on, and he interrupted me. He said, I don't know any of the details, but I know you, and I can see that you're on fire. You need to write this book. Took me five years was told by my publisher, you'll get one printing if you're lucky. Nobody's going to want to read that book. And six printings later, it's, it's starting to peter out. But, and, you know, it, they weren't big printings. It's not, I'm not on any bestseller list. What I wanted to do was say thank you to a group of men, and I did, because I was able to see past my own nose long enough to realize that they had helped raise me, and I didn't want to leave planet Earth until I found a way that would honor their work, and their legacy. So I wrote that book. When I was acting out, when I was drinking, when I was a mess, there's one thing I could not handle. My mother was a nurse. She came home every day. We had seven kids, and she'd talk about her day. The other six would sit around, and I would run upstairs. There's certain things you can't talk to me about. Body parts, blood, illness, mortality, I don't do those. No. When I got sober, that changed a little bit. I'm still not real comfortable with it, but on May 1st, 2010, my cousin Pat, who's 
almost like a brother to me. He's the same age as my youngest brother, Paul. He had suffered a massive heart attack. Uh, I believe at the time he was, let's see, 45 years old. And they saved him, but massive brain damage. And uh, he spent the next seven years in an assisted living facility. Um, and he, he, it, was, it was subtle, but he gradually got a little worse. At first, you'd sometimes be able to kind of connect with him. And by the end, he was still in there. You know, you could play certain music and he'd come to life. Once in a while he'd talk to you, but most of the time he wouldn't. Um, I said to my wife when it happened, I said, I am going to go see this guy twice a month till the day he drops dead, or I do. I don't know why I came up with twice a month. I just did. And uh, that's what I did. And most of the time, the saint that I married named Kathy came with me. Um, and she had to deal with a lot. She had to deal with my anxiety going because every time I went, I had to gear myself up. When I was there, it was fine. It was some of the most spiritual time I had because, you know, I'm, I'm always wanting to accomplish something. I'm always wanting to do something. And when I was there, there was nothing to do except be. And I'm not much of a beer. I'm a doer. I think Bill might relate to that a little bit. I'm a doer. And uh, I just had to be. But then as soon as I get in the car, I just, I'd either be angry or I'd be weeping. And my wife just had to pick up this, the pieces, meaning me, <laughs> and she had to drive home. I, I don't think I ever drove home. I would drive there, but there was no way I was driving home. I'd have killed somebody. But I went because we're taught to visit the sick. I always wanted to visit the sick, but I was too scared to visit the sick or too drunk, or both. But now I could visit the sick. And when he died, my cousin Maureen came up to me at the wake and said, we want you to deliver the eulogy for Pat. And that was the greatest honor of my entire life because he was nothing but a life force. He was a life force, and, and that was a great honor in my life. When, after he died, though, I was kind of at loose ends because I didn't have anybody to visit. But then I started visiting my friend Bill. Bill is 88 years old. Bill sold me my first scorecard at Wrigley Field when I was probably eight years old. He's a cantankerous, grouchy guy. If you go buy a scorecard from Bill and you didn't have exact change and he had to break a 20, he'd be like... And he fascinated me from the time I was a kid. I didn't know his name. I just bought scorecards from him. He was one of the scorecard guys. And sometimes I wouldn't go to Bill because if I, if I had a 20, I thought, I don't want to get Bill all mad. I'd go to another scorecard guy. But when my son was in high school, so that's back when, that's back in uh, the early 2000s, they had some high school dinner event downtown, and Bill wanders in off the street. And Bill wasn't homeless, but he wasn't that far from it. You don't make a lot of money selling scorecards. And... Uh, he came in, and I said, Bill, you're my, you're my scorecard guy. And we struck up a friendship. And uh, just kept buying scorecards from Bill, and chatting with Bill. And next thing I knew one day, I found out Bill was in a nursing home. It was two years ago, I think. I, I, there was no Bill for the scorecard. So I asked some of the other scorecard guys, where's Bill? He's in a nursing home. It, for the next... Two and a half years, at least once, a, once every two weeks, if not once a week, Kathy and I, we go see Bill now. 
We hang out with Bill. He tells the same stories every single time we go. They're great stories. It's, he, the guy led a great life. He worked in circuses. He's been selling peanuts and popcorn all over America. He's hitchhiked everywhere. But what he says that's most poignant frequently is he says, you know, Mike, I've led a lonely life. I've led a lonely life. And so we go visit him. And honest to God, makes me happier than almost anything I've ever done in my life. And I can't tell you why. I have no idea, but it just does. Um, I had an experience with Bill. He's in a wheelchair most of the time. He can walk, but not very far. And he was back in his apartment for a while, but now he's back in the, in the uh, nursing home. But when he was in his apartment, we came over one day, and me and Kathy and this other friend of his, and he said, take me to Dunkin' Donuts. So um, we took him over to Dunkin' Donuts, and on the way there, he, he, had to, he had to stop. I forget why, but he had to stop. And we stopped in the middle of a driveway, and he looks at me with a big smile, and he says, you know, you're standing in front of me. If a, if a car pulls in here, it's going to kill you and not me. He thought that was really funny. So <laughs> I said, thanks for sharing that, Bill. Let's get on to Dunkin' Donuts, and we get in there. And there's no reason for me to tell you this story other than I thought of it, by the way. But, but um, we, we get in there, and uh, Bill wants to buy himself. He doesn't, you know, you, you got to be careful with Bill. You got to help him, but if you help him too much, he, he barks at you. So he wanted to go up and order himself. So he goes up in the wheelchair, and he accidentally bumps into this guy standing there. And the guy says, excuse me, you bumped into me. And Bill doesn't say anything. And then the guy turns around to me and says, can't you take care of your father? <laughs> and I had a lot of things going through my mind that I could respond. Most of them involved words that had a lot of Fs in them. <laughs> and uh, I said, look, the guy's 87 years old. Give him a break. He's doing the best he can. He didn't hurt you. Just step out of his way. And he said, step out of his way. He's in my way. I'm mature. I'm 35 years sexually sober. I say, what do you mean he's in your way? He's 87 years old. What's wrong with you? <laughs> My wife's having that, oh, no, look. Like, <laughs> like, where are we going with this? The Dunkin' Donuts employees are eyeing the phone like, is this going to be a cop call or not? <laughs> then out of nowhere, Bill, sitting in his wheelchair, goes, Got to stay by the mic. He goes, stop! <laughs> Knock it off, you two. <laughs> Kathy and drive over there. We call it Life with Bill. Wonder what Life with Bill's going to be like. We play bingo with all the people in the nursing home, and Bill tells us how he never wins. But when he does win, it, you know, it's something about being able to live beyond your own nose, you know, that self-centeredness it talks about in the big book, you know, the root of our troubles, self-centeredness, you know. When Bill does win, he gets a dollar, and he rolls over to this gal he likes and gives her a dollar every time. <laughs> Those are some of the benefits of being sober. The last thing I'll talk about is my family, and I, I did a, a fair amount of that already today in a couple other sessions if you want to pick up those tapes. I want to say a couple things about my wife. Um, she retired four years ago. I told you I was cheap. We always got health insurance through her job because I'm a straight commission salesman, and for me to buy my own health insurance is a fortune. 
She came to me four years ago. She said, I want to retire. And I, I, you know, I'm a spiritual guy, so the spiritual side of me is thinking, fine with me. The not-so-spiritual guy is thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to pay for health insurance. (laughs) Even if she had come to me even two years before she did, I wasn't there yet. I wasn't there yet. But I talked to my sponsor. I prayed like crazy. And I came back to her and I said, you're everything to me. You want to retire? You retire. I'll pay for the health insurance. And because I was on my wife's, my assistant who's worked with me for years, she got a pretty nice salary, but I never had health insurance for her. So it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because when I looked into it, I figured out I could not only pay for our health insurance, I could pay for most of hers. And it was going to hurt. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. But I, I had reached the point where I didn't really care. I did, but I didn't care enough that I didn't do it. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Because about 15 years ago, I had started praying this prayer that I mentioned earlier today that that John the Baptist uh, said about Jesus. He he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's been my, my mantra with my wife for the last 15 years. I'm bad at it. I want to be clear about that. I'm bad at it. It does not come naturally. Harvey and I were talking at dinner before the talks, and I was saying to him, every time my wife says, honey, I have a question, inside I like tighten up. Like, oh my God, what does she want? (laughs) Harvey couldn't relate at all. Actually, he did a little bit. But but anyway, (laughs) but anyways, um, There's a, there's a thing we say on, on, on Good Friday in my religion. We say, we adore you, O Christ, and we praise you because by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. And I hope people won't find this sacrilegious because I find it very religious. But I say to my wife on a regular basis, and I'm going to have to read this so I don't screw it up. I adore you, O Kate, and I praise you because by your holy face you have redeemed my world. I tell her that at least once a month. And uh, when that doesn't work because I've really screwed things up, I literally crawl on my knees and kiss her feet and say, forgive me! (laughs) And it usually works, and when it doesn't, I know I've really screwed up bad. Because if my humor doesn't work, I got nothing else. That's my only bullet. Last thing I want to talk about, I want to talk about my relationship with my 24-year-old daughter, Mary-Kate. Um, talked about my relationship with my 31-year-old son earlier today. So again, if, if you want to catch that side of it, it's out, it's out there with Lee. But um, some of this is going to be a little bit of a repeat but from earlier today. But it, my sister says about me, you're a great guy, but you're high maintenance. <laughs> you're not what we call relaxed. And... Uh, I've really only had one low-maintenance relationship in my entire life, and that's my relationship with my daughter. I don't know why it's been easy. I don't deserve it to have been easy, but it's been easy. It has had very few tough moments. It's just been easy. Um, After that high school thing happened, she ended up being the valedictorian of her class. She's a pretty smart kid, and uh, she wrote me a note. She said, thanks for doing all the work you've done. 
because it's made you apparent that I'm not sure many people have. I don't really know that for sure, but here's what I do know, and this, this part is a quote. You have been a rock, a light, and a source of good in my life. And um, that, was a, that was just a beautiful thing. We were talking at a Chinese restaurant recently, and we got on my parents, and she, she knows like that I had a tough history growing up, but she didn't know too much. And I found myself telling her the story of the time I came home, with, had borrowed my parents' car, I was new in recovery, I know I was sober from alcohol. I'm not sure if I was in SA yet or not. And um, my mother was drunk on the chair when I got in, and she said, where are your sisters? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, you were supposed to pick them up at the airport. This was the first I'd heard of it. I said, I don't know what you're talking about, Mom. And I was standing about here. She was in a chair about here. And she stuck her foot up and kicked me so hard that I slammed into the wall and almost knocked the family pictures down, which I thought was kind of weird. And um, I was so devastated, even though I knew she was drunk, I flipped her the keys and said, well, you're getting them, I'm not. And I went up to bed and wept. And for some reason, I, I, I found myself telling my daughter that story, and then I felt, oh, my God, I shouldn't be talking about her grandmother like that. Now, my mom's been dead for years, but still. And I, I said, maybe I shouldn't have told you that. And she said, no, Dad. I'm really glad you told me that. You've always, you've always let me get to know you, and if you're telling me that, it's probably because you think I'm ready to hear it. And frankly, I am. And it doesn't change my opinion about grandma at all. It just tells me part of your experience. And I said, well, I want to tell you more, though. I said, it, it, I don't want, you know, I said, your brother and I had some rough times. There were three times that I raged at him when he was a young man. Um, and... And I want you to know that because I don't want you to know that. But if I'm going to tell you about rage in our family, I can't just tell you about my mother's. I need to tell you about mine. And I'm in recovery for that, too, by the way. And uh, she said, I kind of knew that, Dad. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then she said, I really want to thank you for telling me that because it makes sense out of my relationship with my brother. She said, we're close, but I've always known that he had some harder feelings toward you than I do. And I said, that's because I wasn't as healthy when he was young as I was when you were young. And she said, it just, it just helps complete the picture. Thanks for telling me the truth. And I tell you that because I grew up in a very wonderful family, but nobody told the truth. Nobody talked about anything, particularly sex, Denise, but, but anything. And, um, and so I guess what I want to say is, First of all, what I really want to say is, I love you. Thank you for your help. Please keep staying sober if you're doing it, and please get sober if you're not, because if you haven't figured it out or not, it's a beautiful way of life. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.